Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Box podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and I need to tell you about the podcast tomorrow. We've got Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak is coming on to uh, answer my questions and maybe your questions. If you've got a question for Rishi Sunak, Email me, matt.chorley at times.radio. And if it's any good, I might use it and pass it off as my own. And if it's rubbish, I'll say it's from you. But if you've got a question for Rishi Sunak, matt.chorley at times.radio. There's a bonus. We might throw on a chat with Harry Hill into the podcast as well tomorrow. Uh, But anyway, that's uh, coming up tomorrow. Coming up today, Britain is going into space. Or at least we're sending British satellites from a British spaceport. Really interesting chat coming up about uh, how you make a satellite and then how do you put it into space from Cornwall or Scotland. Uh, That's coming up in the podcast in just a moment. But first, as ever, it's the Columnist panel. And on a Thursday, it's... The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Oh, I've not spoken to you for ages. James Marriott's here in the studio. How are you, James? I'm here in the studio. I'm, I'm well. Good to see you. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Do I not see? Do I not seem well? No, well, you know, you I feel well. Okay, feel good. relaxed. And uh, beaming in, maybe from actual outer space today is India Night. Morning, India. Good morning. You well? I'm really well. I had a lovely holiday. Did you? I did. A nice couple of weeks off. Bit of Lyme Regis. Bit of France. Lovely. Lovely. Where did you go? To my garden. <laughs> <laughs> my garden but you know we had the weather for it and i just had i did no work and it was so nice oh i know there is something nice about just being at home knowing that other people are working and you're not uh oh, there is uh, that is something genuinely uh um genuinely good um oh, i feel like we've got to come let's not talk about the Tory leadership contest is anything you got any, any you got anything pressing that you feel you want to say about the Tory leadership contest james <laughs> um gosh just so exhausting isn't it they're just and they're all being so i mean it's just kind of this Amazing spectacle, just being so horrible to each other, and it just kind of dragging on and on and on and on. on I just can't can't believe it. Weeks ago, India. On and on and on and on. on. It's absolutely interminable. It's having trapped in some sort of hideous limbo. Um, No, I don't have anything to say apart from the fact that um, 
Liz Truss, who I still think would be a disaster, is is much improved in her delivery. I mean, still weird, but less weird. So that's something, I that's, guess. That's progress. That's progress. Yeah. Right, that'll do. That's the toy leadership right, coverage. Yeah. That's enough of that. Uh, let's talk about your column, James, because it's sort of related. Yeah. Is You've written about charisma, charmers, and why... why well, you sort of lament the fact that nobody has any charisma and then says, decide that people who do have charisma come a cropper in the end. Yeah, well, I was looking at the kind of... I was looking at the present candidates to be prime minister and I think we have this kind of... We have this sort of... A little bit of a myth, maybe, that we live in this sort of age of, like, videos and viral sound bites, and we're obsessed with personalities and really charismatic people. But I was looking at Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, and Keir Starmer, and I was thinking, neither of those three people who are all in contention to be our next prime minister or next prime minister but one, they're just not very charming at all, really. In fact, I think... Anti-charm is the best word for a lot of them. And my argument was basically, is it a little bit of a myth that charisma is the thing that gets you to the top? And actually, even if it helps some people, I don't think it's inevitable and often quite uncharming people just seem to kind of slog their way to the top um, regard regardless. Yes. Well, I think... Yes, but Boris, look at Boris. Boris. Boris got to where he was and was forgiven as much as he was forgiven because people found him, rightly or wrongly, deeply charming. Yeah, I, I, so I completely agree. And I guess all my column was trying to say was to try and kind of correct that little bit and say, yes, charming people do succeed, but clearly it's not totally inevitable. And I mean, Boris sort of did kind of crash and burn in the end, I guess. Although he did, he obviously got, he did get right to the top. But I just, I think it's not, in, it's not the inevitable thing that you have to have. But is it sometimes, it's sometimes, I don't know if it's in America, this little jock nerd thing, that the idea that we alternate in politics between, you know, charming charisma showmen and people who, who, are, who are none of those things. <laughs> and actually, so so to some extent, the, the, the candidates that we have now are the, are the antidote to what had bef went before. So, uh, you know, slightly charmless, dull uh, candidates uh, coming after Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was the showman who came after the sort of charmless Theresa May, who came after the showman that was David Cameron, who came after the charmless Gordon Brown, who came after the char charmer Tony Blair. Yeah, it is. It does uh, work. It is back. such a frighteningly kind of persuasive theory, isn't it? And it's kind of almost alarming to think that our democracy actually, you know, we have all these debates about policy, but actually that's the kind of, is just that's going underneath it. I think, I think there's certainly got to be some kind of truth in that because I think that the, the thing with charm is that when you first encounter it, you're like, oh, this is amazing. This person's so charismatic. There are so many jokes. And then you go, oh my God, this is all a bit of a mess. This is really, you know, often I think people end up feeling a bit conned by charmers. So I guess you run back in the other direction. And you kind of you kind of look for look for dull people. So I guess in its way, you know, I guess in in its own way, kind of a lack of charm maybe is kind of seductive or you know weirdly sort of uh, charming somehow to the public who are just kind of a bit skeptical of charm after they've been charmed too much. But it's sort of interesting, in India, but isn't it? Because um, the the sort of making a virtue possibly of uh, of, of your desperate bloodiness. Uh, uh, yeah, is weird given that politics is. To a large extent, people lament and say, "Oh no, it should be about the ideas." But it's a there is a big part. <clears throat> excuse me, there's a big part of selling in it. I thought it was odd when Dave, people used to dismiss sort of Tony Blair and David Cameron as a salesman. So, well, that's that's quite well, yeah. a big part of the job. Yeah, absolutely. That's the point, and there's theatre in it as well. You know, it's like watching an incredibly good barrister. You know, it can be very 
compelling. Um, I think, I mean, it's really interesting, the idea that you go from charmer to plodder. Well, I would say about the current crop of plodders is that they're too ploddy even for plod-liking people. That's the, that's the issue. You know, a Gordon Brown or a John Major or a Theresa May at least were ploddy and diligent and plodded on, but were full of ideas. Starmer, for example, who I do think is intelligent and extremely ploddy, you know, I know he's on holiday, but why didn't he come up with this stuff that Gordon Brown's come out with today? And also, I'm interested in that because presumably Gordon Brown had to run it past Starmer and presumably Starmer said, no, you do it. It's for you. I think probably because people might regard Gordon Brown's proposals as too far to the left for Starmer. But that's all interesting as well. So it's a, the combination of ploddiness and like lack of imagination and lack of ideas in the case of Truss and Sunak, who seem incredibly laissez-faire in the face of this kind of oncoming, extraordinary catastrophe, um, is, is, is really noticeable, I think. We've got like really bad plodders a good plodder a good plodder is a good thing but like a yes. if you're if you're kind of you know boring and ploddy and don't kind of have any thoughts then it's a disaster yeah i suppose there is that there's possibly that distinction between uh gordon that's probably a distinction you could draw between sort of gordon Brown and theresa may theresa may didn't really have any ideas either is it yeah there's yeah. a stylistic thing and uh doesn't just because you are uh, a bit dull doesn't mean you lack creativity. Yeah, no, the, you want a ploddy thinker. That's what you want. Yeah, and the thing with the thing with the, the thing with kind of Liz Truss is that she kind of she she lacks charm, but then she also doesn't have that reassuring. I'm just really boring. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be a steady hand on the tiller and get things sorted out. She kind of has the sort of slight frightening edge of madness that you get in charmers, but then none of the redeeming charm, which doesn't seem like, um, I, it feels like we need a new category, jock, nerd, and then I don't know where Liz, I don't know where, what, Liz, what, what Liz Truss is. Um, she's not quite a nerd. I feel like she's some kind of third, terrible third alternative has appeared in <laughs> British politics that we Dep need a new category to... Deputy head girl. Yeah, deputy head, <laughs> yeah, deputy head girl. So Joe's just been in touch. I disagree on Keir Starmer. He definitely has a quiet charm. And that's not the same as charisma. I mean, it's quite... No, he's not uncharming. That's no. fair. That's he's yeah. very quiet. The quiet man is turning up the charm. <laughs> turning up the volume. <laughs> it's the thing that reminds me of when I mentioned... when I, I wish I'd had sort of space to clarify this bit, but I, I, I sort of mentioned John Major as a bit of a plodder. But I know that people often say that John Major had a kind of one-on-one -on -one charm that never totally turned into charisma over the TV. And I think that's a kind of important distinction. That's people who can be very easy and you know, um, lovely to talk to in person. Sometimes that doesn't transmit over television. Well, we, so we can't always, I guess, say who is charming and who's not charming politics. We only see one part of it. But then, uh, you know, that's like the last refuge. And I've been knocking around long enough to it. I've seen this with several people. <laughs> I had it with Gordon. But if only, if only Gordon Brown could meet every single person individually in Britain, mm. they would discover what a lot of that's funny so, was. That is very true. With his, <laughs> with his three anecdotes. Uh, and then if only everyone could see Ed Miliband in person, they'd discover that he Hillary was Hillary Clinton always got Hillary this. Clinton. If you could hang out with Hillary Clinton, she'd we, be really uh, we had it recent. We've had it recently with Keir Starmer. Actually, and actually, even uh, even Rishi Sunak's campaign, which I'd argue this, that he was going once yeah. he got out and about and met it, people individually. I mean, there's only 180,000. There's which... apparently some amazing party you can go to with Rishi Sunak, Hillary Clinton, Gordon Brown, and John Major. You're going to have an absolutely fantastically it's fun be time. Wild. <laughs> it's going to be like the Hangover. Just <laughs> one on one, it's going to be brilliant. <laughs> Sorry, go go on, India. Um, oh, I was going to say, my sister, very very bizarrely, my sister met John Major at a party once years ago and came back saying he was powerfully attractive because he was so charming, which 
I found incredible at the time and still find incredible, but she maintains that it was so. Well, I mean, and is he kind of, he's kind of good, is he good looking John Major back in the day? No. Of, no? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, he's got nice glasses. You know, I always think glasses and a man. But actually, yeah, and a friendly <laughs> smile. You know, he's all right. Well, I definitely but... remember him once coming, he gave a speech, a uh, sort of press gallery speech. Uh, um, in fact, they do still happen uh, post COVID, but sort of once a month, the press gallery, all the journalists in, who work in Westminster, someone would make, come and make a speech. And quite often it'd be like a cabinet minister, they'd announce a policy or and John Major came and did it once. And it was extraordinary. In fact, do you know what? Amazingly, he was talking about a crisis in energy bills and how something must be done. And the quiet, what was the, he had an amazing phrase. It was sort of net curtain poverty. That's what we're talking about. People who, mm. who really took care in their homes, despite not having a lot of money, and they were really suffering. And mm. the government needed to wake up to it. And I can't, I think this, I think he literally called for a windfall tax. We should get him on again. Hmm. But I think there was a whole generation of political journalists, me included, who slightly missed him first time round. Yeah. So I thought, oh, this is not the man who tucks his shirt into his pants and eats peas yeah, and all yeah. that. Yeah, he's had a he's, of our recent prime ministers, he's probably had the kind of, he's had one of the most kind of improved images, I think, after leaving office. And he sort of yeah. transformed himself into a bit of a statesman. Mm. Which at the time was not really the kind of, it was all sleaze and yeah. decay and stuff around him. And that, I mean, that's, but it's also the sort of, you don't get to become the Prime Minister who replaces Margaret Thatcher if you are the caricature that a whole generation yeah. that followed yes. had. Yeah. yeah, it's a real skill there. Um, let's just finally talk about uh, Raymond Briggs because, um, you know, he passed away this week. And I think it's been amazing. Clear, what an amazing thing to have done what he did and to clearly have influenced almost everyone. In a, yeah, in a, a universally po uh, positive way, India. Oh, I, I, I love him so much. I mean, everybody goes on about... There's a fantastic cartoon, actually, in today's times, um, uh, referencing um, his book, When the Wind Blows, which haunted me as a as a teenager because we my generation all lived in constant fear of you know nuclear annihilation a very very good cartoon worth looking up yeah that's um, uh, it's it's more it's more to more has done a sort of yeah uh, he's so good it's a tribute but it's it's using because that's the couple so it's the, the couple who who was sort of preparing for nuclear armageddon isn't yeah, it which yeah. is not what you'd normally describe as a content for which has a, a brilliant frame in it where you know everything they're going to die everything is awful and they're so and they're so dutiful and they so believe that you know the government is going to save them it's going to be all right and they crawl and they put their kitchen table and they and they and they crawl under their kitchen table and then you know that's the end of that it's such a complete masterpiece but they're all masterpieces i mean he was an absolute absolute genius and that whole generation of children's writers you know shirley hughes died earlier in the year uh i don't know i think they're sort of irreplaceable yeah they were so extraordinary because they're 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 they were so adult. They were so clearly adults who wrote for children. And I think currently, I mean, I'm talking about children's picture books, not sort of young adult fiction. I think the current crop of writers try to write like children. Mm. And that gives a completely, that has a completely sort of different result. Whereas Briggs and his many of his generation, although he was the greatest, I think, wrote and drew like an adult and the sensibility is adult and that makes them really interesting and kind of nourishing and totally unforgettable i think and quite challenging sometimes james you know the the the, the snowman is sad yeah definitely although and we all think of it as christmas and they're flying walking in the air and all of that it's tragic but yeah it's a got a proper kick, sad storyline yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the raymond briggs book i loved as a kid was father christmas goes on holiday yes, father yes. i loved father christmas goes on holiday that wasn't the one with there was one with bits of paper in it, wasn't there? Am I imagining? Oh, was that? 
There was one that was like with envelope. It was the postman. The jolly the post. I, God, I love. No, that wasn't him. That was the jolly oh, was that postman. Alan um, Alberg. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. God. All I, good. All good. I stuff. really liked. I enjoyed um, the. the uh, I was reading. Raymond Briggs was talking about why he did the snowman, and he'd done Fungus the Bogeyman before. And that was all like, he basically said, I was like sloshing about in mud and slime and dirt. So he wanted to do something that was clean and nothing was cleaner. Like as a yeah. counterpoint to Fungus Burger than a snowman. It's very pristine, that book is. Yeah. Beautiful kind of snowy landscapes and stuff. And you know, when people go on about how um, graphic novels are the new thing that all the young people are talking about. That's, that's basically what he was doing. Yeah, we've already got Raymond Briggs. Yeah, we've already got Raymond Briggs. Lovely. Well, it was nice to talk about all of that rather than um, <laughs> you know what. James Marriott and India Knight, then of course you can read them both in the Times every week. James on a Thursday, India on a Sunday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box. Up next, we're heading into space. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Space, the final frontier. I'm up in space. Up in space. I did like to speak over because Gareth might get cross. Who always gets cross if I speak over the lyrics, but. Uh, anyway, lovely bit about John. Yeah, we're heading into Space Day. As regular listeners will know, we love a bit of space. Space policy, discoveries, satellites, rockets. But of course, a lot of it all comes out of America or Russia or China. Uh, but what we wanted to do today was take a look at what was happening in the British space industry. Uh, and uh, it was slightly actually prompted by Boris Johnson. You might remember, got slightly overshadowed what with his resigning and whatnots. Uh, but in the House of Commons, one of his last appearances in the House of Commons uh, before um, he we broke up for, for recess, he was talking about space. Let's take a listen. And this, this, government, this government will continue to make the UK the place to come uh, for the industries and the businesses of the future. This year, this year Newquay will join Cape Kennedy and Baikonur as a functioning spaceport, I'm proud to say. And for the first time ever, under this government, 
a British satellite will be launched into space from Britain. And next year, the spaceport in Shetland will roar into life thanks to the investments of Lockheed Martin and others as local crofters, local crofters, and I mean humble crofters, Mr. Speaker, almost as humble and local as the right honourable gentleman opposite, have withdrawn their opposition because they can see that it means jobs and growth for their area. And people in this, in this, in this House may not, know, may not know it, but this government has made an investment in low Earth orbit satellites. And it was a risk, uh, hundreds of them. Uh, but it has paid off for the taxpayer, and hundreds and hundreds of them are now circling the Earth, offering all sorts of opportunities, including the potential for internet uh, connections uh, for the people of sub Saharan Africa. There we are. Turns out something we're good at. We spent a lot of money and uh, now it's all happening. I have to say, for as long as I've been a journalist, I think, I've been covering the idea that Cornwall is about to become a space, a centre of space exploration. And now it's really happening. Uh, so we can go there now live. Melissa Thorpe is head of the spaceport Cornwall. Hi, Melissa. Hi, thank you for having me. No, is it, this is exciting. This is exciting. So when is this, this, this rocket going to take off? Um, so we're tracking a launch in early October at the moment. Um, our launch window will open around the 6th of October, at which point we'll be ready to, to get everything uh, up to space. And when you, when you say you're, you're tracking a launch, what are you looking for? What are the conditions then for, uh, for that may, mean you can go ahead with the launch? Um, so a few different things. We make sure, obviously, all the facilities are ready. Um, we make sure that the weather is good. We're a bit more flexible with weather, being a, an air launch system. Make sure that our partners at Virgin Orbit have everything that they need, and as well as, obviously, all our, our satellite customers, like like Josh's team at Space Force, make sure that they their systems are integrated and, and ready in the rocket to, to get to space as well. So there's a few things, but you know this has been a, an eight-year project, so I think by the time October comes, we should have everything ready in place. In fact, you mentioned Joshua. So let's bring in Joshua Weston, a co-founder and chief executive of Space Forge. Uh, morning, Joshua. Hello. Nice to have you with us. Um, now, uh, you've, we, we spoke to uh, Space, uh, uh, Space Forge a few weeks ago because you've built the, the satellite. You're based in... Remind me where you are where you are in Wales. Uh, we're just on the outskirts of Cardiff. Just on the Romney. outskirts of Cardiff. And you've built the satellite, which is going up. Yes, we have. Yeah, so it's the first satellite designed and built in Wales, which we accomplished uh, in a national record of about five months. And how long does a satellite normally take? Uh, the previous national record was 14 months, but they can take anywhere from three years all the way out to 20 years when you get something as big as like the James Webb Space Telescope. So I was going to ask that, to put it in some context, how big is the satellite that you've built that's going up? It's about the size of a shoebox, but it is the smallest form factor where we can demonstrate the technologies we need to create the world's first returnable satellite. Yeah, no, explain this. So this is the difference, isn't it? Instead of, instead of an, an enormous thing going up, doing its business, then drifting off and becoming space rubbish. This is a this is a, a return. It's a sort of boomerang satellite. It can come back down. Uh, <laughs> maybe not quite as violent a manner as a boomerang. Uh, <laughs> I prefer to think of it as Mary Poppins, but from space. So we come back much, much more gently than traditionally um, things that tend to come back from space do, meaning that we can prepare the entire thing for refurbishment, reuse, and relaunch, um, which helps us to really lower the cost. And so, what will it actually do? Because obviously, satellites could do lots of things. Boris Johnson was there talking about you know satellites could be used to 
to bring super fast internet to sub-Saharan Africa without, you know, laying lots of cables and that sort of thing. It could be, you know, taking photos. What, what will this satellite be able to do? Uh, so we're focused on in-space manufacturing. So we're leveraging the microgravity, the high purity vacuum, uh, and the temperature conditions found in space to create materials which are simply impossible to make on planet Earth. Making things in space enables about a billion new alloy combinations across our known periodic table. Wow. And how will you do that? So this is a, uh, what's going up is obviously not manned this time, but could it be? Or do, would you just send up just robots? So uh, the, be the best thing for in-space manufacturing uh, beyond escaping gravity and other things is, to be honest, to get away from all the humans. We tend <laughs> to be the worst thing in the manufacturing loop. Um, so we're operating a semi-autonomous, fully robotic system, uh, which we can scale to hundreds of kilos and multiple tons to deliver enough capability that the material we produce can be produced at a capacity useful on the ground. So so explain what, so, so sort of treat me like, a bit like an idiot. Uh, well, I am an idiot. Uh, explain what sort of, what are the things that you could make that could then come back down to earth and what would they be used for? Uh, so we're focused on next generation alloys and compound semiconductors. Uh, so by producing some semiconductor technology in space, for example, when those semiconductor chips are used back on the ground, you can reduce energy consumption by more than 50% in the architecture where they're deployed. Wow. And why, just explain to me why you have to go to space to make that. Why can't you make it here, apart from getting it away from dirty, hairy, dusty humans? So you can make them here, but they're not very high quality. Uh, and that comes down to the ambient atmosphere that surrounds that manufacturing process. So semiconductors uh, are tend to be built in vacuum chambers to extract Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and it's also a, a question of gravity. So escaping both of those at the same time allows you to create much larger, single, purer crystal structures, meaning that uh, heat can escape more easily and uh, electrons can move across more freely. So that's your thing. It's about the size of a shoebox. Where, to what, start, yeah. To start with, although it, could get, it will get bigger. At what point do you send it from Wales to Cornwall? Uh, in uh, a couple of weeks, I think, time. Um, so we we were we were given the launch opportunity back in January. We said yes in February. We designed, built, and qualified a satellite in that time. So we finished our qualification of that uh, about two three weeks ago. Um, and I think I think both government and uh, Virgin Orbit have been pretty impressed that we've managed to pull it out of the bag and be ready for launch when it happens. So your uh, your satellite goes to Cornwall, Melissa. You, let's pick up the story with you. What what does the satellite then go on? How big is the rocket that's going to take off? Um, so the Virgin Orbit Launch One rocket is about 70 feet long um, and it carries about up to 300 kilograms of, of satellite into space. So on our first launch, we'll actually have several shoebox size satellites um, from several, several different companies okay. um, all over the world um, that will come to be launched in Cornwall. So they'll arrive, um, many of them on lorries, which is exciting for the first time because at the minute, all our satellites here in the UK have to be shipped overseas to launch. And so this is a great example with, with Josh's team that it can get on a lorry and come down to Cornwall instead of you know fly all over the world. And we'll be able to integrate it on site here in Cornwall into that rocket ready to go to space will all happen in house here in Cornwall. And uh, so as we heard from Boris Johnson when he was talking there, um, he, he was talking about the rocket taking off from Cornwall. And then later he said from um, uh, Shetland, is it Shetland? No, Southern, um, David Oxley, Director of Strategic Projects. Are you there, David? Yes, I am. Definitely. I am. Thanks. You're there yeah, as well. <laughs> um, explain uh, uh, the the what you you do at the space hub. Okay, so uh, for there's there's a couple of space uh, 
what's happening in in Scotland at the moment. There's uh, Shacks of Ord in Shetland and Space of Sutherland in Sutherland, obviously. And what we are planning to do is is more traditional vertical rockets that will take satellites up. Uh, but these are small rockets uh, with small satellites, similar similar size to the ones that Joss mentioned, uh, that will be used for Earth observation. And what is it, it, am I um, being too simplistic to think that there's something about the fact that Cornwall is at one end of the country, Shetland's at the other end of the country. It, 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 does that make it better for, for space launches rather than doing it from, I don't know, middle of Wiltshire? Uh, you've, there's a few things that benefit from the remoter parts of, of the UK. Firstly, safety, because, you know, it is an important aspect of what we all do. We, the, the primary aspect of everything that Melissa, Melissa and myself are doing is about safety. So less people around is a good thing. But also, particularly for the north of Scotland, you can access the right orbits uh, for satellites. So you, you want polar orbits, those that go over the poles, north to south, and also those sun synchronous, those are ones which look at the, uh, effectively take, can take a photo of the same location every day. Um, and and uh, so is that is that a sort of because uh, I suppose actually if you think about it in America you know you go to uh, Florida that's you know that's literally as, almost as far east as you can get so that being being on the edge of the country is of some benefit is it um, Michelle? Uh, sorry, Melissa, Melissa. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we like to think of ourselves as the bookends of the country <laughs> launching to space. And, you know, where we're David and his team are up there in Scotland doing vertical um, and, and capturing that marketplace, us down here in Cornwall are working with, with horizontal. So we're integrating launch into an actual airport. Um, oh, hang on a minute. Hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is even more interesting. So uh, the, 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 the launches in Scotland are, are vertical rockets like we, you know, a child would draw. What's the horizontal launch look like? Um, so it basically basically uses a carrier aircraft. In our case, it's a Boeing seven four seven that straps the rocket underneath one of its one of its wings. It takes off on the runway like a normal aircraft would. It goes up to about thirty thousand feet, where it deploys the rocket midair. So it's also known as as air launch because it it actually launches midair and the rocket then goes into space. So we basically take the rocket partway to space. And what's the advantage or disadvantage of doing that as opposed to a sort of traditional in inverted commas sort of rocket going straight up? Um, I think advantages, we have a bit of flexibility in exactly where we're launching. Um, so we could go to, to different trajectories um, and weather windows as well. We're able to kind of get above the weather. So it means um, that we're at less scrubs with weather. Yeah. Um, I think some of the disadvantages with some of the systems at the moment, we can't do the heavy lifts. Um, so the big, the bigger size um, payloads that you see maybe from SpaceX, for instance, with this system. So for us, it's this quality over, over quantity here in Cornwall, but for us, we're, we're just integrating into the, all the other activities at the airport already in Newquay. So there'll be passenger services flying off to the different destinations and they can look out their window and see a launch say, to space. So you could be you could be waiting to go on your holidays and see a, a rocket going past out the window. <laughs> well, at least the airplane that's carrying the <laughs> rocket. Yeah, which is pretty impressive. So from a, I mean, an inspiration point of view, we think it's really exciting. Well, I was going to ask that both uh, David and, um, and Melissa. Well, David, first of all, maybe what's the point of doing all this? Because we already know we can launch rockets from Cape Canaveral or wherever it might be. Why, why go to all this trouble to try and do it from here? So the, the UK and Scotland in particular has a really strong uh, footprint in in space, uh, particularly with satellite manufacture in in Glasgow, for example, where Glasgow manufactures more satellites than any other any other place in Europe, um, and all those satellites at the moment have to go to other places. So that's typically the US 
or Kazakhstan up until very, very recently. And obviously, Kazakhstan is not available uh, at the moment for Western mm. European launches. So uh, what we can actually offer with um, the likes of Space of Sutherland is a very much a bespoke service. If you've got a small satellite like Josh's, you want to launch it um, at the time you want to launch it. But if you go to Kazakhstan, for example, you're sitting on a big rocket that has got a big satellite on and you're waiting for that one to be ready. So if that gets delayed for six months, then you're delayed for six months. So the, the, the things that myself and Melissa are talking about, and which are out there, sort of an Uber service for, ah, for getting see. satellites into space. It's uh, when you're ready, we can be ready. So in, in Sutherland, we can be launching up to 12 launches uh, per annum with uh, multiple satellites on, on each one. And it gets you to the right place rather than the, the uh, the sort of public transport system that you have if you go on a big launcher. <laughs> is that is that part of the appeal, Joshua? Yeah, really, it comes down to capacity and cadence. So by 2026, Space Forge needs to be launching at least 12 missions a year. And by the end of the decade, we're looking to launch more than 100 each and every year. For us, that capacity and that cadence helps us deliver these materials to our customer. But for us, it's also the start of the next industrial revolution. Now, the UK led the last one, and here's an opportunity for us to do that again, but it's in space. And I suppose with it comes lots of uh, high-paid, advanced, highly skilled jobs, Melissa. Yeah, absolutely. And for places like Cornwall and Scotland, you know, Cornwall has some of the most deprived areas in Europe. Um, and there's levels of deprivation here that, you know, we, we, we struggle down here outside of the kind of traditional hospitality and farming and fishing. So for us to bring highly skilled jobs to a place like Cornwall and really grow a skill base here um, from, from the ground up, literally up um is is, is crucial That's to really, some of these rural locations it's really interesting that, that precisely the it's precisely their geographical locations why some of these areas have struggled but it's also precisely why you could get these really high tech high skilled jobs uh going there as well is there any prospect at all of uh of manned flights taking off from cornwall or, or shetland or, or sutherland david uh i don't see that anytime near i think we we are uh, almost boutique spaceports as opposed to the Cape Canaverals of yeah, this yeah. world where we'll do what we'll do what you want. Where billionaires want, go you, to show off. The, the, <laughs> yeah, you could say that, absolutely <laughs> say that, Matt, yes. Uh, no, we, we're very much more about, as, as Melissa mentioned, we want to create high-value jobs that are sustainable in the long run in some of the most remote parts of, of the country, and that's that's why we're doing it. It just happens to be space that enables us to do this. So, Melissa, Melissa's well, the window opens. What was it October the sixth? David, when when do when do you hope your window opens for your first launches? Uh, so we we expect to be launching next year at some point. I uh, haven't got a specific date yet, but uh, that's that's the plan. Lovely stuff. Well, best of luck with it all. Uh, we'll check we'll check in with you as well. Keep in touch and let, let us know when you get on. We'll definitely be all all eyes on Cornwall from the beginning of. Uh, beginning of October. A really good speech. That was David Oxley there um, from Space Hub Sutherland and uh, Shetland is uh, keeping an eye on as well. Melissa Thorpe, Head of Space Port Cornwall and Joshua Weston, Co-Founder and Chief Executive of Space Forge. In a moment, we're going to hear from uh, the UK Space Agency and we'll also take a look back at what happened when I tried to experience the G-force of going into space. So we just heard from uh, the teams working on that first uh, space launch, rocket launch, uh, due to happen from uh, Spaceport Cornwall beginning of October with the satellite. One of the satellites on it has been made in Wales. But will we ever see humans take off from Britain? I mean, I stand ready. I'm fully trained. Well, possibly. Uh, there was a slight issue about getting a 
master's degree, I think, which might be a, might be an issue. Or PhD. I think you might have to you have a PhD. Anyway, uh, last year, you may remember, if you were listening uh, last year, and if not, where were you? Last year, uh, the UK Space Agency arranged for me to go in a centrifuge to experience the G-force of going into space as part of my astronaut training. Good, okay, so we're only going to inch the G up to 4.5. Oh, this is a full whack this time. Uh, 4.5, it will be, yeah. This is what I've come for. Okay, yeah, let's do it. G's coming on in three, two, one, now. And here comes the weird breathing. Good, keep that going, keep the muscle tensing going, Matt. Juice coming off, we're rolling out. Breathe normally now, but keep the legs tensed until the wings are level. <laughs> well done, Matt, that was very, very nice indeed. Any light loss for you? Uh, no, that felt like a longer time than however long it actually was. Okay, I'll flight controllers, I'm going around the horn. Okay, retro. Peter Swan's just been in touch saying, who chooses the music? Public service broadcasters is an excellent choice. The answer is me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, what's the state of the UK Space Agency right now? Where, where, what does the future hold? We can speak to Matthew Archer, the Director of Commercial Space Flights, who joins us now. Hi, Matthew. Hi, yeah. This is an exciting... It's good to have you with us. This is an exciting moment, isn't it, for... Rather than sort of the UK sending people to other places to do exciting things, exciting things are going to happen right here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a big part of what this program is about in terms of delivering a launch capability from the UK. It's building on, A, the massive commercial market that's growing to say that we can launch them from the UK and we can be really competitive and offer some really good services and and yeah, a really exciting moment in our history that will be, it'll be the first time anyone's ever launched a commercial satellite from, from European soil. Um, so yeah, a big achievement for the UK and one that we hope will inspire others going forward. Well, that was going to ask that. The sort of the, the idea, you know, people talk about when they first saw uh, Man on the Moon and that sort of thing. But the idea of, particularly in the Southwest, as we were just discussing, you know, Cornwall's got massive problems with deprivation and, a, you know, the economy yeah. and, and all of that. They're actually school children looking and seeing a rocket taking off from Cornwall and the, the exciting sort of high-tech scientific possibilities that that holds could inspire a whole generation of children, more than something that happens right across on the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is something about having it local and just providing that experience and the opportunity to come and see some of those things. So Spaceport Cornwall have been running uh, an exhibition over the last year to really engage local students. We've been running national competitions to inspire primary school students and get them involved in understanding kind of what space can offer them and kind of their potential you know, future careers and encourage them to take up uh, sort of STEM subjects. But it's it's a real inspiration moment that this this has been you know five years in the making from a government perspective. Um, but it's a, it's a big achievement for our industry to say that we no longer have to send things around the world to actually be deployed and start creating commercial services. Um, so, yeah, a big, big opportunity for us to demonstrate that we are a leading space nation uh, and can launch our own satellites. 
We should, uh, I mean, it got slightly lost in Boris Johnson's farewell uh, uh, speech and statement in the comments, but it was interesting that he focused it on one of the, as one of the issues of one of the achievements that, that happened on his watch. Uh, he was obviously very excited about it, I suspect, as well. He thought, I hoped he was be able to sort of bask in the glory of it happening. What would you like to see from whoever is the new prime minister? What What are the next big sort of stepping stones or big, you know, or would you like to see rocket boosters put under to use the right sort of metaphor? The, 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 what's the next big challenge that you'd like to see the next prime minister uh, deal with for, for UK space? So it's a really good question. I mean, for me, uh, our focus is absolutely on on first launch this autumn. But I think for, for an incoming prime minister, the agency has set out a really ambitious agenda to deliver the priorities of the national space strategy. And for us, that, that involves kind of significant challenges in the years ahead, whether that's looking at how we can support development of Earth observation industries in the UK, uh, whether that's supporting companies like OneWeb and how we exploit their offering. Um, but likewise, there's, there's so much more that we're looking to invest in across the UK uh, space sector. And for me, that's one that we'll look to hopefully secure that commitment and ongoing support recognizing that for every job we create in the space sector it has an average income two and a half times that across the uk um so yeah it's a really high productive sector um and it's growing quickly and we're keen to support that it's really exciting matthew really good to speak to you matthew arch there director of commercial space flight the uk space agency uh, thanks for thanks for joining us on Times Radio. We'll, of course, keep across that rocket launch happening in Cornwall at the beginning of October, weather permitting, not least because it'll be a nice distraction from the Toy Party Conference, which will be grinding on at that point as well. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from?